Thank you, Tim. You read that as if you wrote it. Um, these opening verses of John's gospel are identical to the opening of Genesis. And you're to make no mistake the comparison. In Genesis, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the source of creation and God exists before anything has come into being. Now in John we hear these words, in the beginning was the word. So first and foremost, John connects the word to God. The word was with God and the word was God. Now some interpreters want to argue that this, that the word uh, which in Greek is logos, is, is derived from its Greek meaning and therefore has a kind of philosophical principle of rationality. That it lies deep within the universe or the cosmos and it also lies deep within each and every individual. And that all we have to do is get in touch with this principle and your life will find its true meaning. That that's what John was talking about. But I don't think John uses logos in the Greek philosophical way. I think he uses logos as an interpretation of the Hebrew davar, which is also a word that means word. But in Hebrew, it means the word enacted. When God spoke, something happened. God's word is active and alive and, and makes and, and has an immediate effect. And therefore, I think John isn't referring to some abstract principle. John is referring to a being, a person. And John wants to present this person to us up close and personal so that we'll know who this is and form a relationship with him. Immediately, John speaks of the word as he. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing has come into being. So just as John connects the word with God, he's quick to immediately connect the word with the cosmos or with the world. And like Genesis, John sees God as the source of creation, but the word is God's agent that brings everything into being. There was never a time when the word was not. So like God, the word existed before anything was created. The word is creative and generative. Such that the knowledge of God that the word brings is not informational. He's not, John is telling us that this word is not going to enlighten us in a whole new way. But rather this word is itself life. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all. Whatever else John is going to tell us, he wants us to see his book as the creator God acting in a new way. Make no mistake, the long story which began in Genesis is now reaching a climax in the way God had always intended in Genesis, the opening climax is the creation of humans in the image of God. Now, in John, 
the climax is the arrival of a specific human who is sent by God, who is God, who is God's word uh, enacted, made flesh, made visible, made known. John emphasizes in one in, in verses one and two, and again in 18, that the word was and is God and is intimately close to God. But then in verse 14, he says the most startling thing, that the word has become flesh, has become human like you and like me. So in effect, John says, if you want to know, no one's ever seen God, but you want to know what the true God is like, then take a good long look at Jesus. And you're going to have some idea. John's going to tell the story of Jesus as a story of new creation, a new beginning. And he's going to mix in poetic imagery and language that is reminiscent of the original creation to get his point across. For example, he describes light shining in darkness. Just as the word challenged the darkness before creation, now it confronts the darkness that is found tragically within creation. The word is bringing into being this new creation in which God says one more time, let there be light. If you wanted to have a sense of how to read the book of John, it really has two main sections. It's pretty simple. Uh, the first main section is chapters 1 through 12. And that portion of scripture or of John describes Jesus' public ministry. And you're going to read stories of his encounters with people, his, some miracles that he will perform, some healings, some teachings. You'll also find him interacting with religious leaders because most of his public ministry takes place in the Galilee region. But in John, Jesus regularly visits Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three major Jewish festivals. And it, both en route to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem, as well as time in Jerusalem, Jesus teaches and, and interacts with people. And you get a strong sense of what his ministry is all about through those interactions. That's the first half of John, chapters 1 through 12. Then the second half begins at chapter 13. Jesus is again in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover we refer to this particular Passover as the Last Supper because Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And for five chapters, chapters 13 through 17, he gives specific instructions to his disciples. It's referred to in scholarship as the upper room discourses where Jesus is intimately teaching his disciples about life and about what will happen when he leaves. Um, and then, as you know the story, he goes on to Gethsemane where he's arrested, he is tried, he's crucified, dead, buried, he rises from the grave, and there's several appearances, resurrection appearances that John speaks of. And so that encompasses chapters 13 through 21, the second half of John. So that's sort of a good way to know where you are and how to read through the Gospel of John. This sermon series, we're going to do about two-thirds of his public ministry and one-third in that second section. One of the distinctives in this first section is what John refers to as 
signs, miraculous signs that give evidence and, and give some, um, some direction as to Jesus' true identity. And they all occur in this first section. The first one being the wedding at Cana, where Jesus will turn water into wine. And John even tells us this is the first sign. He's going to tell you when the second sign happens, and then he stops. And you're supposed to figure out what the remaining five are, so that there's a total of seven. Seven is a repeated number in John because it represents wholeness, completeness. It's also the, the, the days of creation, right? And so you can see where John, who's interested in creation and a new creation, is going to use seven repeatedly. And so there are these seven signs all which occur up through chapter 11. And, and that in itself is worth trying to identify which, which sign is it. Well, I'm going to tell you um, John's sixth miraculous, or the sixth miraculous sign that John identifies with Jesus, and that is when Jesus in chapter 9 gives sight to a man born blind. If you read that entire chapter in one sitting, there is a comic element to it. Because here's this man who once was blind and Jesus makes whole and he's able to see, but he's immediately interrogated by spiritual leaders around him as to who, who healed you. And, and this man's trying to answer and he gives, they interrogate his parents, they interrogate everybody. You would, never mind, you would, you'd, you would just think he's on trial. And, and he's like, I don't know what you're, I don't, I don't understand what you're asking, but I can just tell you, I once was blind, and now I see. And he, in essence, is saying, and John is saying through him, why can't you see? Do you see what, what he does there? He, he takes this whole image of, of light and, and restoration and being made new and created new, and the spiritual leaders, those responsible for teaching God to the people are themselves blind. They're unable to discern or, or understand who Jesus is. Ultimately, this darkness, this, this um, contrast between light and darkness. Here's this man who once was in darkness, now is in the light, but the people around him are still in darkness. Ultimately, this darkness of opposition to Jesus is going to result in his death, and eventually his death on the cross. And even there, the darkness does not overcome the light. Because John will tell us, this is the revelation of God's glory, most on display in the most vulnerable and life-giving act of all. Jesus dying on the cross. Here, God is most fully revealed, or Jesus most fully reveals God's heart and God's intent. Another distinctive feature of John's gospel is the connection that, that he makes with the time God revealed his name to Moses and the people of Israel. If you remember, God has called Moses to go be the deliverer of his people who are oppressed in Egypt, and he's to go confront Pharaoh. Now, he's a shepherd, and he's got a staff, and he's going to go confront the most powerful man in the world, and he goes, um, one question, um, who do I say has sent me? Who are you, by the way? What's your name? And God gives Moses his name. 
And I love how Frederick Bigner says it. He says, from that point on, God never had a moment's rest. Uh, he, gives, he gives his name to the people, and, and they use his name over and over again. Well, anyway, this name in Hebrew is derived from the verb to be. And the Jews hold it so sacred that they won't pronounce it, but we think it's something like Yahweh. And it just simply translated means, I am. So he's telling Moses, if Pharaoh asks who sent you, tell him, I am has sent you. And so Jesus is going to use those exact same words. In Greek, it's ego me. It just means, I am. And he doesn't do that without without uh, John makes it very pronounced that we identify immediately what Jesus is doing. He is making a claim as to his true identity. By the way, scholars think there are seven I am statements. Depending on how you count, you can count more than seven, but they like the number seven um, because they think John does. So to give you an example of one of those, the Feast of Tabernacles, when Jesus is celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the traditions of that feast is it's a reminder of the time Israel was in their wilderness wandering, and they depended upon God for water and for direction, and, it was, and for survival. And so one of the ways in which God provided direction is he would be a pillar of fire, that would go before them and lead the people through the desert and their direction. Well, as part of the Feast of Tabernacles, torches are lit at the evening as a reminder of that pillar of fire. And Jesus uses that occasion to say, I am the light of the world. Notice he doesn't say, I am the light of Israel. I will lead you and guide you. He says, I am the one who has come to fulfill what Israel was meant to fulfill to be a light to the Gentiles, to be the one who delivers the world. I've come to save the world. It's just so layered, this book, with all kinds of significance and meaning, as if, do you see? Can you get it? Do you understand who this is? Two of the most startling things about this opening and about uh, John's presentation of Jesus in this prologue is first the incarnation, the fact that the one who creates the world um, would be made visible in the flesh. We, it is such a paradox and such a mystery. It is difficult to explain to anyone, um, let alone comprehend ourselves. It's not something you use more reason to figure out because it challenges reason. And yet... It's presented simply as a reality. And the primary effect of this reality is that the revelation of God is a revelation of one who brings life, who is for life, who makes life happen. The same God that created, brought life into being, now brings new life in Jesus. This is a major theme throughout John. He talks about eternal life. And, and for John, that doesn't mean life beyond the grave. It means a whole new life here and now that starts now in, in this lifetime. To receive what Jesus brings, according to John, is to pass from death 
into life. John says Jesus comes that we might have life and have it in abundance. He talks about it like water welling up continually that quenches thirst. That is something vigorous and flourishing. I like how pastor and author Debbie Blue puts this. She says, God didn't become flesh to institute a religion that condemns sexuality or decries the physical world. But, God, but to free us from our attachment to what is not alive, what is death, and what doesn't feed us but drains us of life. What a powerful statement. Jesus has brought life, and, and it's so, you're going to see throughout John's gospel that there are religious leaders that keep harping on death, keep wanting to legislate and regulate who God is and what God wants, and Jesus brings life into the situation, and they want to know, who are you to bring life? They don't even acknowledge it as as life because they remain in darkness. The importance of getting this correct or right reminds me of the story of the great baseball star Harmon Killebrew. He and his wife had two sons and one of the sons recalls how his father used to play with them out on the yard and one day the mom came outside and said, you're tearing up the grass. To which Harmon replied, we're not raising grass, we're raising boys. And it's like, how obvious is that? And yet, we get bothered when the grass is messed up. Right? We want things the way we want them. We get used to things. And we, we even want God to be in God's place. And Jesus disrupts that. And says, wait a minute. There's a higher priority than what you're focusing on. Than what you're locked into. That's the significance of the incarnation. It's mysterious. It's a paradox. It's, it's, it's awakening for us. The second startling thing to me is the way God does this. Making God's self accessible in a way that God limits himself, but at the same time becomes vulnerable to our own judgment. We sit in judgment of God and find him wanting we can accept and believe, or we can disapprove and reject God's offer. God sends the word into the world, but the world doesn't know him. Jesus comes to his own, God's chosen people, but they, don't, they do what the rest of the world does, and they reject him. In John's gospel, belief is not a singular act or a moment of decision. It's not just a one-time act where we say, okay, now I'm on Jesus' side. Before I wasn't, now I am. It's a lifelong process of discovery. It's an invitation that Jesus offers to follow and to learn and to grow. And if you think, well, I'm too old to grow. I've reached, I've, I've reached that period of my life where everything's settled now and I just like it the way it is and, and um, it's better not to watch TV because it's just not, it's aimed at another population. 
that's on another planet somewhere, but it's just not me, right? This past week, I conducted the memorial service at a mortuary for Clara Hudson. She came to this church through the invitation of a friend. Here's the situation. She, these two people, Clara had become friends with Anna Smith over 25, 30 years ago. They met in a, in an exor- a senior's exercise class. And, and Clara made it a pattern of, not Clara, pardon me, Anna made it a pattern that every Sunday after church, she would stop off to visit Clara. Clara had been Jewish in her background, but I think was more secular than anything. And so Anna had no intention of trying to to tell her about the gospel or anything. She just regularly told her about coming to church. And one day, Clara says to Anna, when are you going to invite me to that church of yours? That's how most people come to a Presbyterian church, by the way. Um, they're not invited directly. They have to ask, can I come? And if I do, will you sit with me? But um, we're, not, we're a lot better than Episcopalians. I think it's one in every 27 years a Presbyterian will invite someone to church. Episcopalians do it one in every 32 years. So, so pat yourself on the back. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, so anyway, Anna goes, I had no idea. And so she brings her in her mid-90s. She comes to church. She likes it. She hears about Jesus. She, she's convinced, I need this. And then one day, it, it, it was such that she could no longer come to church because to get here was too difficult and walking and everything. But she says to Anna, by the way, can I be baptized? And Anna said, well, let me talk to the deacon. And so she talks to Lloyd Chelly, and Lloyd Chelly calls me, and we go before session and say, yes, she can't get here, so a group of us go to her apartment. And she's 99 years of age, the only person I've ever knelt in front of at 99 and baptized her into the kingdom. Oh, my goodness. So don't tell me you're set in your ways, that, that you've got it all figured out, because Clara will tell you differently. She lived to be 103, 53 days away from turning 104. Um, you take someone like Peter, perhaps one of the most devoted and deeply involved followers of Jesus, And even he needs to be given a second chance to affirm his allegiance and commitment to follow Jesus when he's denied him. All I'm saying is it's not a one and done uh, experience. What it means to be a follower of Jesus is to engage in, in one who is vulnerable to the point of making himself known. And what does that do for us? This is, John says, this is why new grace is given on top of the grace that had already been given through the law. I had never considered the law to be an act of grace on God's part. But if it's God directing us and guiding us, instructing us, then that itself is grace. But John says there need to be a new grace on top of that because that was limiting. It could only take you so far. 
the grace of Jesus is able to help us see a full disclosure of who God is. Perhaps the incarnation is not so much that Jesus shows us who God is, but rather shows us what it means to be human, what it means to be open and vulnerable before God and one another. Maybe that's what Jesus is doing. Well, this whole series, we're going to follow John's narrative of who Jesus is and the interactions he has with people. And in doing so, we're going to see what caused some people to believe in him and become his followers. At the same time, some who chose to want nothing to do with him and reject him. I don't think God's done with us just yet. And this is an opportunity for us to learn anew. May it be so.